Blog Talk Radio. Well, good evening to some and late afternoon to others. We'd like to welcome you all to the Perkins Platform. We're broadcasting live uh, this uh, evening uh, from um, a, the Association of uh, School Administrators um, Conference in Los Angeles. Uh, we are at the JW Marriott and on Olympic Boulevard. Um, and we are excited to be here. We have a special broadcast tonight uh, that is uh, underway uh, that we have special guests from the LA Unified School District. We have with us um, Dr. Dwayne Davis, who is the Senior Director of Curriculum and Instruction for um, uh, Los Angeles Unified School District. We also have with us Mr. David Tukowski, who is a strategist for the Associated Administrators for Los Angeles. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, tonight we're going to spend some time talking um, with um, our experts here um, in Los Angeles who've had quite a bit of experience with um, uh, school turnaround. And this whole notion of school turnaround has been, um, has really, uh, since about 2009, um, has really been at the forefront of uh, American school reform efforts. And so for those of you who are uh, non-educators out there, when we refer to school turnaround, we're really talking about a change in leadership um, where um, uh, experts come in, um, someone with experience, usually um, dealing with difficult school situations, and expected to uh, get the school um, on its right foot and moving forward. Um, the debate that currently exists about school turnaround uh, is really around the sustainability of school turnaround. And um, uh, Dr. Davis has been a, um, a principal um, who has a record of successful school turnaround. I had the great privilege some months ago uh, to visit one of his schools that um, he was the principal of some time ago, and it is still in, in great shape with uh, high academic achievement and great culture at the school. Uh, but there are many out there that don't have the same outcomes, and so hence the debate about the sustainability. Uh, the sustainability is mostly about once the leader leaves, um, uh, often um, schools fall back into their ordinary pattern. And so tonight's discussion is really about um, policy and practice options uh, regarding school turnaround, what makes it work, um, what makes uh, a school system um, decide to go in this um, this direction. Um, what are some of the constraints? Um, but really, uh, the nuts and bolts about what might be possible uh, with regard to school turnaround. So um, enough for me. I'm going to jump right in um, and and direct our first um, uh, kind of question to Dr. Davis. Um, and um, I just want to remind our callers, um, uh, listeners, that if you'd like to call in, we're going to take uh, some calls towards the end of the show. Uh, you dial in at 347-826-9029. Uh, Again, 347-826-9029. Um, and so, um, again, welcome, Dr. Davis. And uh, what I want to do is get you to uh, tell us a little bit uh, briefly about your experiences um, in L.A. Unified. Tell us about some of the places and, if any, what are some of the themes 
around difficulties in the schools that you have been asked to come and take over and, uh, and, and serve in a leadership capacity and turn around schools? Well, I was a principal 13 years in urban schools as we're speaking on today. Many of them were, as all, very underperformed, very much high poverty, low expectation settings that needed a culture change. And it mostly begins with the leadership. Uh, I think that the most important piece of all of all the schools that are very much in the same predicament is the leadership and how we can, of course, grow the leadership on the campus as well, not just from the principal perspective or the administrative site perspective, but also as far as the staff is concerned. And so that was where I always began my dissertation. Actually, was on school transformation and school reform. We started with the Los Angeles Unified School District's LEARN program many, many years ago, and just wanted to find out what the impact of that program was on the school sites. And so that's how I got into the field and the area of school transformation. And being a principal so long, I've had an opportunity to work in all the areas, secondary as well as elementary, and seeing the gamut of what could happen and what's possible when there's high expectations and all are on board with such. Um, my last school was probably one of the more renowned and known because of its area. It's in a historically African-American area, uh, very much known in Murder Park, and it's had a history of success, but then it had many, many years of a history of failure as well, as far as the school is concerned. So it was important that we were able to save that school, make sure that that school was, once again, the beacon of the community that it had been once before. And so that's why and how I ended up at my last school, which was a couple, several years ago, I should say. Okay. What's well, interesting that you you brought up um, a culture of high expectations uh, in my regularly scheduled broadcast. This just this past um, uh, Wednesday, we had two guests on that talked about um, the that talked about the um, the importance of high expectations um, in in schools. And um, I want you to say a little bit about that because one of you know these were researchers and individuals that had worked. Um, talking about um, intellectual expectations uh, for for students, um, but what what challenges did you find to that? Um, not just and, and let me just clarify, not just challenges um, with the students, um, but the mindsets around teachers and individuals. Uh, um, uh, as you mentioned, high expectations. What did, what did you find there? Yeah, you actually just hit it right there. You answered the question with the question. It is a mindset, and it's more than just stating high expectations. It's actually living the expectations, exemplifying it, making sure that it permeates the culture and that all are, are aware of what is the expectations of not just the students, but of the staff and of the staff of the administrator and of the administrator of one another. So in that regard, you consider, I guess, more of a transformational leadership style, a transformative leadership style. So it, work, it works pretty well. Um, the difficulty is making sure it's embedded and that it's throughout the school site in more than just words. Um, sure. Actions are what is necessary from every angle, from every client, from every employee on the campus to make certain that mm -hmm. is instilled into the students, into the culture, and it's more than just the classrooms. 
Yeah. It's before school, during school, after school, uh, expectations between the, the home and the school, the school to the home, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. It becomes more of a community collaborative as opposed to just a site, mm-hmm. site-based culture. Sure. So tell me a little bit, because I, I really want to dig deeper into this. Um, you, you mentioned expectations, and it is about expectations. What did you have to do, though, as a leader in this situation um, to make that change? Um, because it's not just about saying um, you have low expectations, change those. So give us, give us kind of the, you know, the bird's eye view um, of, of what you had to do as a leader. Well, in every school that's even underperforming, there's always a, a core group of individuals that really want to see the school do really, really well. And so you have to identify those individuals first and foremost. Gather them, bring them close to you, let them know what your philosophy is, as well as and how it couples with the school's vision and mission, and then make them the ambassadors of the messaging. Help them elicit and bring in other individuals that have very much the same mindset. And then, of course, identifying those that aren't ready for the change uh, and trying to convince them that it's, it's necessary and needed for the betterment of the student body. And then, of course, there's always those that just aren't ready for the change and may need to be helped to another location. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know it's not it's not easy. Um, um, what what did you see um, when you went into these various locations? I mean, is there anything that seemed to be consistent uh, other than expectations? Was there something that um, you saw among parents or or even just among students? Tell us what you what one would expect to see in a turnaround situation or in the turnaround situations to the turnaround. Well, typically what you would see is the teachers who are doing very well, they pod themselves and hold on to one another for almost their life, um, just trying to make it through the day. And then you'll also find those that believe that this is not just a, not a career, it's more of a gig. And those are the individuals that you really need to kind of counsel and develop and help them to see that this is a career that actually is on the line. And then parents are always, as all parents, want the best for their children. And I, I tell my principals now that parents don't keep the good kids at home and send us the rest of them. They send us what they have, and it's up to us to educate them. And so parents wanting the best for their students. They may not know how to get it. They may not know how to articulate it, the needs of their students, but they really want the best for their students, children as well. And so it, it's pretty much... The same in all type, all of those schools that are mm-hmm. performing. Sure. And there's there's not a, much of a difference. It's just be a different area, um, but the needs pretty much remain the same. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, to our audience, um, we'd like to again uh, welcome you to Perkins Platform uh, um, webcast uh, live from uh, the JW Marriott tonight. Um, we have a special session tonight with uh, members of the Los Angeles um, community. Um, who are involved in education. Um, we uh, encourage you to call in later in the show, 347-826-9029. Again, 347-826-9029. Um, our topic tonight is about um, the uh, turnaround efforts and the debate on turnaround, and we're focusing on uh, policy and practice 
um, options. We have with us Dr. Dwayne Davis, um, who uh, works uh, currently uh, with the LA Unified School District, and we have with us um, Sir David Tukowski, who is uh, a strategist for the Associated Administrators for Los Angeles. Um, so now I want to shift just a little bit. We've we've talked about um, what happens uh, a little bit from the leadership perspective. Um, now I want to go kind of even um, higher in terms of the the bird's eye view. Uh, Mr. Tukowski was a uh, a member of the LAUSD Board of Education at one point and is a longstanding member of the community, um, uh, respected in the education circles greatly. And so he's one of our guests, and I want to um, talk to him a little bit um, also and get his perspective from uh, the discussions that kind of happen around how do you decide that now is the time for school to be in turnaround? Um, what are the discussions that happen um, um, with that? Let's start there, and then I have a few more for you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Brian. Uh, you seem to invite me to all the provocative discussions. Last time you had me at the Council of Urban Boards of Education in New York, and I think you had me debate Chancellor Joel Klein on mayoral takeover. So uh, we go from mayoral takeover to to turnover, from takeover to turnover. Um, but uh, you're asking me as a policymaker. Together we served uh, as board members uh, on national uh, steering committees. And I, I don't think um, really the um, discussion about what to do in Los Angeles was um, thoroughly vetted and was developed in an, in an engaging um, all-hands-on-deck fashion, which may have benefits to it. Uh, uh, Superintendent John Daisy is a uh, no-prisoner's guy, just goes in and, and, and does what he thinks he has to do. Um, and um, other superintendents like Ray Cortinas, who preceded him, would tend to build a greater consensus and, and understanding of what's going on. Um, and I, as a policymaker and a, a social studies teacher, would, would argue that um, much like the report that just came out of the U.S. Department of Education this week, uh, with every stellar um, participant on it, that, that there are no silver bullets. There's no one factor, whether it's teacher evaluation or uh, weighted formula of funding or uh, changing the governance or changing the the faculty that one of these alone or even two of them alone uh, will not take you uh, on a 30 40 year pattern of, of sustained change of the community uh, of the school and the, and the community around the school and and so I'm I'm a little bit a kind of clastic on this topic because I don't think uh, the creation of the um, the 100 schools um, or so that in LA Unified were deemed to be in this one section of turnaround, um, there was a, wasn't a thorough understanding of by what standard, what, what um, goal, and that it's not necessarily um, individual failings or a school's failings, but uh, there's a variety of factors that that um, don't even have to come up with the word failings. They, they could be um, different in each one of these places. And I think the team that's been assigned that is finding the, the variance between sites. And nobody quite knows 
really um, what the change is. And I was I was sort of thinking today. Well, it came very close. They put a young man uh, who I knew at Green Dot School, Tommy Chang, in charge of this. And uh, Chang is pretty close to change. They just forgot the E at the end of his last name. It would have been Tommy Change. Um, and, I, and I mean to say that Tommy's a young, idealistic guy, but a lot of these schools have deep histories and, and histories of people and communities, and you cannot sort of adapt this. Um, um, uh, we had to destroy the village in order to save the village was the phrase in Vietnam that Lieutenant Cowley had. You cannot come in with this uh, drone attack. You have to do, and what Dwayne hit on a point that I thought about was, you know, you have to identify the folks there that have been struggling for three or 30 years and have the spirit in which to um, teach the kids, the kids that come. Um, but too much of this turnaround discussion ends up about politics and power and maybe finances. Never does it seem to be a discussion about poverty anymore. Um, it, and and we, we never finish that war on poverty. So I would say when I start hearing more about professional development and curriculum and instruction and what turns a young person's mind on to want to be there and be excited about their learning, um, then um, I'm going to think that now now we're really moving. And we're not turning it around. We're just uh, setting it on fire, kind of setting the minds on fire. So uh, I'm interested to hear more on the ground of what's happening because I'm not um, on the ground. But it, I, I think as a policymaker, I think it was rolled out in a way that didn't necessarily get as much consensus um, about what the mission was. Mm-hmm. And and interesting enough, um, Dwayne and I um, had some conversations uh, some time ago about uh, the last school, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, he was in, and and um, that it, it seemed as though, at least um, from his perspective, that um, he he was being recruited more so to prepare the community to close the school. Um, but Dwayne, why don't you tell us a little bit about that conversation and share with the audience uh, that conversation we had um, um, that I think would be um, really um, interesting to hear um, your charge going in as a turnaround specialist. Well, as, as we know, the school was underperforming. And my initial reason for being assigned there was to basically prepare it for whatever was to become of it. Uh, however, Mr. Cortez had a little more sight than others, I believe, and wanted me to, in his words, be able to save it if possible. And so I told him that, you know, we would give it a yeoman's try. Uh, with that being said, as alluded to earlier, again, we had to identify the strengths, basically doing a SWAT analysis, analysis, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats to how we can move forward swiftly, because it was at a point of no return, if you will. Uh, And so as we identified those areas that were strengths and opportunities to move forward and uh, made those pervasive, as well as addressing the weaknesses and threats to it moving quickly, it, it was able to be turned around quite quite nicely. 
as, as also mentioned earlier, I think the big piece of it all is the professional development. And as you find those individuals that have have the mindset and have been there for years who just really want to see it do a, do a wonderful, do wonderful thing with students and use them as your ambassadors and also talk to those individuals who aren't quite sold, then, then you can start doing some things with professional development to shore up the, the areas that are necessary for the teachers to assist the students, whether it be just an understanding of poverty, whether it be, of course, curriculum instruction, and of course, and always, you know, the human dynamic of the teaching that I think oftentimes is missed. And so that's the hidden curriculum that isn't quite mentioned when you speak about transformation or school turnaround, but all those things are encompassing and encompassed in leadership. Well, you mentioned even earlier, you mentioned um, um, different strategies that you have to consider working with individuals in the school and not ruling out um, that sometimes people have to um, have to be counseled out or to other places. Um, now I want to hear from both of you a little bit about that particular challenge um, um, where if we're talking about uh, in, in most states um, certified um, personnel um, have are uh, protected and you, we've heard a lot over the years about unions and, um, and issues related to teacher tenure and the like um, how difficult is that conversation, though, uh, from a policy perspective of uh, partnering with the union to, to understand that there's some that are not meeting the requirements of today? Um, and then on the ground, um, what are the, what are the, the real um, um, challenges and hurdles um, to doing just that? Because um, I, I think we can't just assume that if you go to someone and say you're not cutting it, you need to reconsider being in teaching or go to another place that is just that easy. So what, what have been the challenges to that on the ground and then also in the policy uh, arena? Well, in the policy arena, um, I think the discussion has become um, really distracted toward somehow that the collective bargaining agreement uh, will change the nature of how a, an adult imparts um, uh, the 1840s to a kid in a eighth grade history class or that the collective bargaining agreement and evaluation will somehow change the way that somebody passionately or doesn't passionately teach about global warming in a 10th grade biology class. I think the discussion has uh, shifted dramatically to be not a war on poverty, but as people are saying now, a war on teachers and blaming the teachers and the educators uh, for uh, a society that um, has not in the last uh, uh, 25 years or, or since the nation was declared at risk 30 years ago today uh, put the kind of investment that they put in the war in Afghanistan or the war in Iraq or some other uh, funding initiative. So I think um, what I'd like to say is when I taught, and I'll try to get down to the ground, and I had 42 kids in a uh, high school government class, one sort or history class, and um, 
there were four kids in that class who, let's say, uh, were deemed to be the troublemakers rather than being on task. If I stopped my teaching uh, of the 42 or the 38 who were paying attention so that I could discipline and control the four, any teacher in their right mind knows you've now lost your mission, that you have been distracted and debased to the, to the level of those who don't want to do something. And it turns out if you teach and you lead and you show the way in which uh, ex uh, learning can be exciting, three of those four kids who were causing trouble really don't want to cause trouble. They were just hanging out with the guy they thought was cool. And once they realized that the other 38 were excited about their learning, they shift over, and now you're down to just one one bad apple. And as a policymaker and as a classroom teacher, if I spent my time on four or one rather than 38, I would lose sight of my mission. And I think that is what is happening with a well-funded, orchestrated campaign to uh, blame uh, public sector unions, uh, particularly teachers' unions, uh, because they're the largest of them all, for um, a societal lack of commitment to uh, public schools and uh, to find a demon, not not uh, the demon uh, this time who is red, although here in L.A. the teachers tend to, to wear red shirts, so they fall into the uh, the red Indian or the red communist, and now it's the red teachers' union. And so they're blamed for being recalcitrant and resistant and problematic, which they probably are. But again, if you focus on your students who are recal recalcitrant, resistant, and reluctant, rather than motivating by showing a higher standard with the carrot and the excitement of learning and the professional development and the opportunities, I said the secret word, and, uh, um, then, then, then you're going to do, go a lot farther as an organization. And here in L.A., uh, the organization has turned into a punitive, punitive organization that is looking for child molesters and uh, bad union leaders and rather than highlighting incredibly talented science teachers or English teachers or or whatever it may be, the, the fifth grade teacher that is uh, doing Common Core before it's been declared that you're supposed to do Common Core. There is no policy making pointing out the, the possibilities. It is uh, policy making now that has become uh, really a civil war um, of, um, of two sides who are not coming together to build a better village for, for the kids. It seems like uh, just yesterday that uh, Hillary Clinton was telling us that it takes a village. Uh, and, and so in such short period of time, we are now turning villages around or shutting villages down thinking we're saving the villages rather than motivating the entire village to do something for the kids. And from from a ground level perspective, as a, as a site administrator, in our time as a site administrator, you know, I can say the conversation was never easy. I was a principal about 13 years, and the very last individual was as difficult as the very first individual. So again, it's never easy. Um, the difficulty part of it was just getting folks to understand, that, especially union individuals to understand that we have the same goal. That, that was the hardest part. We have the same goal. And hopefully you can assume goodwill with this. 
but at some point in time, individuals understand what they want self-worth. They want to be self-fulfilled. I think most people want to do a good job, and as I mentioned earlier, we give all opportunities, at least when I was a principal, I gave all opportunities to develop as a professional throughout the time there, throughout the school year, and, and folks at some point in time realize that they weren't able to meet that. And so some of it was just self-realization, which is why I say counsel more so than, you know, push. Uh, when individuals recognize that, you know what, this may not be for me, yeah, I can confirm or deny that with, with surety, recognizing that I'm in the classroom. I was in the classrooms quite often. Um, but then sometimes it just may be a certain school community that they may not be fit for. Um, my staff will tell you, and they will all say, I would tell them up front, you know, where we are, we, we the Marines. You know, and there's no slight on anybody. We're looking for Marines, not Coast Guard. Brian, you have a national audience, and I think it's important to pull back a little bit and give a little bit of the history and context of Los Angeles um, and California. First of all, like much of the nation, the last five years in California have been bad, and we know statistically a little bit worse than other states because of the decline of the housing market and the revenue to the schools. So that, that's the short period. And that down came right as LA Unified had in, it built itself out of a school system that had grown in 25 years from 400,000 students to 750,000 students in 25 years. It's the largest demographic growth of any city in the United States at any time. Uh, it was a massive number of students coming from Latin America, uh, from Asia, uh, migrating across this country, uh, and there was a massive teacher shortage. Uh, when I started as a teacher uh, in 1983, I was an emergency credentialed teacher. Uh, when I assumed the Board of Education in 95, uh, we had 14,000 emergency credentialed teachers in the system. The number of students had risen again from 400 to 750,000 within 25 years. There was such a dire need for teachers that they shortened the tenure process, which was short to begin with, at three years. In 1983, the year I started with Senate Bill 813, to two years, and even that uh, uh, was um, not enough to get the number of bodies that you needed in, in the system. And so when you think about how many people came in so fast, the central offices had no vehicle, and this is, of course, in the era before even minimum competency testing mm -hmm. in, in, in most of the states, because that started in the mid-'80s, um, that um, you had a quality control issue to begin with. And then, of course, um, suddenly the, the folks are tenured, and then suddenly somebody says, well, we better do something about these tenured teachers that uh, aren't uh, um, uh, all trained and ready to, 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 to work for NASA. Mm -hmm. um, so so you, you, you have to Which take in the, in the context. You have to think of the context and the history of things and the massiveness and think that you could find a silver bullet to undo 25 years of massive emergency credentials. Uh, a lot of the folks that people are looking at also came in in the strike of 1989 
uh, who crossed the picket lines got a job during the strike. After the strike, they got certified and became permanent teachers. So nobody was even checking to see if they had an emergency credential. They just needed bodies in the room during the strike. And that's a smaller piece of it compared to the larger part. But I, I think what happens over 25 and 30 years, we went on to a 163-day calendar in LA Unified mm. that literally 200,000 kids uh, had a shorter school year on a multi-track year-round calendar. And that calendar had a negative effect on student achievement. That calendar, you could do nothing about it. The federal government didn't bring in aid because of a lack of a coherent immigration policy. Uh, the state didn't have the money to bring anything in. Kids were, playgrounds were taken up by bungalows with emergency credential teachers. And finally, when I was on the board in 1997, we passed a multi-billion dollar school construction bond. And it was like aerial spraying of Prozac in the system, that you suddenly gave people some hope that you could build yourself out of this crisis. And nobody thought the voters would, you know, that failed school system, that the voters would actually put their tax property value into it. And not only did they pass that one, they passed four more school construction bonds. Five construction bonds and no instruction bond. Okay, because the crisis had become so much about the housing and warehousing of kids that you had to take care of 30 years of warehousing and shorten school years first. Right as we finished essentially getting everyone off year-round calendar, the world's economy crashes and there's no money. Well, I don't think it's the kid at Hoover Elementary school's fault that they were on a multi-track warehouse bungalow and the world's economy had crashed. It's only now that hope has begun. Hope is, I got, I got elected again for a second term. We have an experienced governor now. There is a moment here in California and in the nation to do constructive engagement and assistance to understand the sociology of education, to understand kids and adults' desires to be self-actualized and have important effects upon kids' learning. But more importantly, that is not being discussed because some foundations don't want it to be discussed. Poverty matters. If you take all the factors, it's not determinant, but if you take all the factors affecting school, the most powerful factor is poverty. I'm not saying it's 50% of it. I'm not saying it's 100%. But to ignore poverty and think that you have some other secret sauce is a big policy mistake. And somehow the hundred schools that were picked in L.A. were all in poverty neighborhoods when, in fact, the, the statement we made earlier was they were, we were looking for underperforming schools. Well, there are underperforming schools in L.A. in upper-middle-class neighborhoods, but nobody sent the team into Brentwood and nobody sent the team into the West Valley to find underperforming schools. They sent them into the most impacted poverty neighborhoods and said, you're stigmatized. Not, we're all working to make you know, all the boats rise, as Kennedy would say. So I think there has been a, a lack of, of uh, history and uh, awareness of the politics of poverty in this uh, uh, race to the top, um, in this no child will left be left behind, 
when both of those are reauthorizations of the 1964 law that came out of the war on poverty. So we have the original law is about poverty and compensatory education, the very money that Congress has sequestered and about to shut down in the United States until Congress comes up with a solution. Well, you know, you, you make several really, really important points, and thanks for a little bit of the context here in L.A. Um, you know, one of the things that um, I've frequently been quoted as saying, you know, three things matter uh, in policy decision-making. Those are context, context, and context. That, um, you know, we, we often consider um, what is happening in one place or another, but not really um, put into um, our consideration or even our discussions the context in which we're going to make some of these things yeah. happen. Um, um, I, I agree wholeheartedly with your, your statements about poverty. Um, and and one of the things that I, I am bitterly against, you know, I, I always say that the um, No Child Left Behind uh, uh, marketing ploy, uh, as, as I like to think about it, uh, will go down as one of the greatest marketing strategies um, uh, ever because how can you say that no, you want to be against No Child Left Behind um, when in fact um, there were several really um, poorly considered options within the, the whole policy of No Child Left Behind and even the notion of the race to the top. Um, that in a race, I think it's just a wrong metaphor, because in a race, somebody loses. Um, and, and where, in, in this case, what we're talking about, we can't afford to have people lose. Um, but going back to some of what we were, we were talking about earlier, about school turnaround, and whether or not that's, that's an option that, that is sustainable, um, you know, what, I, what I'd like to hear a little bit about also is, um, as David, you talked about communities, um, uh, Dwayne, you were also talking about communities, um, how disenfranchised are you finding these poverty-stricken communities? Um, at least in my experience, I haven't um, seen a lot of people um, who knew um, how to come and be advocates for their children, for their schools in these situations anyway. So you might have a public hearing, um, but generally uh, there are not many people who show up and know how to be advocates. What, what about that uh, aspect of it? Let's all bring it full circle and David provided some context regarding the teaching staff that was hired over the last two and a half decades. Um, but nevertheless, we still need to move forward with trying to make certain that we better develop the teaching staff so that we can provide that type of instruction. I mentioned earlier about the parents and the community members that send their children to school. And I said to you, man, I'll say it again, they don't keep the good with their home. Oftentimes they may not know how to articulate their needs or the needs of the community. And so that's one of the reasons why they aren't heard as, as loudly or as often as they should be. And so they will need, and myself as a principal at the time, I felt like I was responsible for being their voice, uh, in addition to educating their kids. And so many of, many a day, 
there would be someone, I was pretty much surrogate father for many of the students on the campus. And you will find yourself in that position in schools that are high poverty underperforming because there aren't individuals who can articulate the needs of the students as well. Parents know, they just don't know how to get it across. And when there are uh, individuals in district offices that have been removed from the situation or have never experienced the situation, they aren't able to decipher, if you will, or translate or pick up the, the code switching that is necessary to understand what individuals are trying to get to. A couple, a couple of thoughts uh, that your question and comments. One, I want to go back a little bit more on the context of L L.A. versus other other big cities. Um, two, uh, the parent question. So we have to get onto the discussion of the parent trigger discussion, uh, the parent trigger law, professional development, and then of course the current. Uh, we're in the last 12 days here of now a very nationally discussed uh, school board elections, um, along with charter policy. So first. Uh, L.A. compared to Philadelphia, Boston, uh, most of the big cities, is different because there are over 40 middle-class neighborhoods within the jurisdiction of L.A. Unified. In most of the other big cities, the suburbanization of the middle class goes outside the jurisdiction of the district, whether that's Philadelphia or Washington, D.C. or Boston. So the, the, the as Karl Marx would say, the, the revolutionary class of the, 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 the between the middle class and the, and the working class moves outside and therefore uh, um, the school districts of Philadelphia and Boston are left with um, uh, a difficult situation because it's not the entire community. It's been uh, uh, racially and um, um, jurisdictionally divided. L.A. doesn't have that. You can start naming the districts from Woodland Hills to Sherman Oaks to Westchester to Brentwood to Palisades to Eagle Rock to Mount Washington. You can go on for really 15 minutes talking about middle-class neighborhoods with homes that have families inside the jurisdiction of L.A. Unified. So every time the superintendent gets on there and everybody on the outside, the reformers say it's a failed, failed system, you are sending the message that everything of those 480 elementary schools, the six of whom are the highest performing elementary schools in nine counties, are somehow failing. And that causes a divide when you could bring people in in a way that could cause significant change and had historically for poor children uh, post-65 and the riots brought more resources to L.A. that every other school district in the state was so politically angry and jealous at that why did L.A. get those resources? It was because L.A. had a political formula of middle, upper middle, poor, and very poor who would go to Sacramento and go to D.C. and get the resources. When you destroy that piece, you destroy the political power of, of L.A. unified, number one. Number two, the parent trigger. Is this a solution? That's sort of something we now know there's laws spreading around the country. I, I don't think parents in, in areas of poverty need more triggers. they got plenty of triggers. That's what's been destroying a lot of the communities. 
And I think the president, after your state's tragedy and our national tragedy, said, enough with this definition of freedom. His speech was about community, that one person's definition of freedom under their understanding of the Second Amendment can destroy an entire sense of national, local, and state community. And we have to start talking more about community, not just freedom from or freedom from your neighbor kind of thing. And so I'm very concerned about the language of the parent trigger. I am interested in the organizing aspect of of how you get parents more engaged to feel that there's some hope that they can do something about their school. But I think when you turn them against their school rather than uh, create some of the education and awareness of what can happen, uh, you lose something. And and I'll I'll pause there. Uh, I do want to get to elections under your leadership of the debate, but I think in the end, if you don't provide that same kind of professional development I was talking about for the science teacher or the history teacher, for the parent and engage your resources, not as parents who could study the budget or parents who could turn around their school, or but parents who can understand uh, a little bit of all the ingredients of a school, uh, you're going to be manipulating parents uh, rather than taking what's in their heart in their treasure that they send to school and, and, and whether it's their grandchild, their foster child, their stepchild, or their own child, they want that miracle to see something happen. And I think we're not finding that that magical formula. We don't have enough leaders like Dwayne to, to be out there, but we have to sort of uh, find a vehicle in which we train people to even be leaders of that discourse. Thank you. Um, and to those of you who are joining us um, late, we are in the middle of a uh, special broadcast of the Perkins Platform live from the uh, American Association of School Administrators, um, broadcasting live from the JW Marriott um, on Olympic Boulevard in Los Angeles. We have uh, guests with us, uh, Mr. David Tukowski, um strategist with um, the um, Associated Administrators of Los Angeles, and Dr. Dwayne Davis, who is um, a part of the uh, central office uh, in, in the LA uh, Unified School District. And so we're talking about um, turnaround efforts and the complexity uh, from a policy and a practice standpoint. We have gone through uh, the gamut of in this discussion about um, uh, teachers, uh, their roles, uh, students and the concern for students, um, and now we're at a point where we're talking about parents. Uh, we do. We will have um, a short time uh, for those of you who are out in the um, radio audience. Um, if you're interested um, to call in, we'll take a few calls. Three four seven eight two six nine zero two nine is the number. Again, eight three four seven eight two six nine zero two nine. And also, our live audience that's here in the room with us. Um, we will also um, take questions uh, from you, uh, so you can be prepared in the next five uh, to seven minutes for that. Um, so as we, we, we left off just now talking about parents, uh, and again, David, I couldn't agree with you more about uh, the kinds of professional development and training for parents. Um, uh, one of the things that we, we realize, as, uh, and you and I have talked about it on a number of occasions, um, we've served on uh, boards together and, and been a part of the national discourse uh, with national leaders about, about this issue, um, that unfortunately, 
Um, in a lot of these uh, communities, uh, the parents are also ones that have been disenfranchised and miseducated and undereducated uh, by the very system that they now are expected to be advocates and participants in. And so that's, that's a very tricky um, and difficult um, uh, uh, situation to be in. Um, but it is it is certainly um, something that we have to we have to do. Um, Dwayne, you mentioned earlier that in a lot of cases you you've served as a surrogate parent in some cases for for children who are there. Where um, how difficult though is it to get people to really understand that education and development of children has to also be community development. Um, we, we have had this conversation, and I imagine this is the same conversation that happened in the early 1960s on, about the war on poverty and even before, maybe as early back as, the, as uh, when we're talking about the, um, the New Deal. Uh, it may have gone all the way back then, but how difficult is it um, to get people to understand um, that uh, that this is about community development, and if we don't do something about uh, failed schools in failed communities, um, David, you you have spoken passionately about the issue of poverty, um, but no one is using that word right now in in the discussion. Well, in the, in, in the, re the report that came out this week, um, I, I think. Um, uh, it was in there very mm -hmm. clearly, uh, and, and poverty and inequality was part of the the, the report that came. Uh, I forgot what it's called. E Equity and excellence is the subtitle. Sure. Um, but people, you know, but what 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 is at the but the now? Core? What do you do with yeah, it? Right, I mean, right. what, what what's the remedy? Yeah. Uh, as the civil rights lawyers will always say, you know, we can sue, we can point out there's an inequality, but what is the remedy? And here in California, the governor. Uh, has um, uh, tried to put forward in his weighted pupil formula or local control fund uh, what he believes is part of that remedy while Washington is undoing the categorical uh, efforts of the war on poverty. The problem is uh, the governor is doing it at a time when we're just putting the floor back in our schools and the research on weighting this revenue is a, not about existing revenue, it's about a massive influxion of new monies, okay? That is to say, when new monies come in, you shouldn't just send the monies the way you've always sent them, you should weight them towards poverty language, and, and in his case, he did double weight in one bucket, called, which we in LA are excited about, he, he did one that's poverty and language. So you would get revenue for poverty, you'd get revenue in a bucket for 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 language uh, issues, and then you get a, a, a sort of a double, triple whammy categorical. Now, it wasn't rolled out well, and the leadership of the Democratic Party here in California, which now controls two-thirds of both houses, which is a unique moment, I think, uh, akin to uh, those of you who've gone to see the movie Lincoln. The, the, the Congress was actually much more important in many ways than Abraham Lincoln, but it's harder to make a movie about a Congress than it is about uh, one president, but, and very little about the abolitionists as well. But anyway, I digress as a history teacher. But the important point is that, that this report says that between states and within states and within counties like L.A., we had a case here in L.A., the Serrano case, which was the lead school finance case in the 70s, which uh, compared Beverly Hills with Baldwin, Baldwin Park and the tax base of the properties uh, 
uh, and how a poor uh, city like Baldwin Park, in order to get the revenue on a $100,000 home, that a $3 million home putting the same 5% tax on, you'd have to put a 80% tax on a Baldwin Park home to get the same revenue you'd get from a $3 million. Somebody has to do something different about the way in which we get the revenue because these inequities are dramatic between states and dramatic between... So in a sense, they haven't, because the the atmosphere has been poisoned, they don't say it in the 50 pages as overtly as, let's get back to it. But I know Tom Sines, uh, who the head of MALDEF, and he's on that committee, and others are on there. Reed Hastings from the Charter Movement, Linda Darlahan, they're all on there. And what they're trying to do is come up with kind of a six-pack of ideas rather than a single silver bullet. But you can feel, I encourage you all to download that, that report because it will help your cities and help your districts because it will take us off this one- or two-factor thing. But infused in this, again, is what, what Brian and, and Dwayne and I are saying, is that, that, that you, if, if you're going to talk about anything in public education post-1964-65, you've got to continue or re-up the war on poverty. Dwayne, it's good to have David here because he speaks from a policy point, and that's fantastic. I have to speak from an implementation period because I was a site administrator as well as district central office. And so from the policy to the implementation and coming back to the question of how difficult is it to have a community development permeate the community, it, it can be challenging for principals and school side administrators, I'll say, especially if it's a middle school and the high school level, more so because folks have their lives going on. And instead of them saying, us, it's, that's your job, and this is my job. And it really can't be that separation between the two. You know, as, as David mentioned earlier, there's funds. There's, there's funding for parent involvement. Title One has a, a quite expansive budget for, for parent involvement, but it's the utilization of those funds that can be really impacting. But I think it's a more what's more needed is for the collaborative approach to bring in parents in and have them not only feel a part of the school but being a part of the school and being involved in their in students' lives. And it's easier said than done because, one, we're asking parents to come off of work, often to be involved, whereas that is our work with their students and their children. So I see, I see the difficulties for parents, but it's, it's something that we have to continually seek for, to achieve as administrators on campuses, and it's something that parents have to actively move towards and try to aspire for with their employers so that they can become part of the community. And when that occurs, then you'll see then you'll see schools that are culturally changed and it permeates all aspects of the school day. Not again as I mentioned earlier, not just in the classroom but on the campuses before schools and after school as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
Sure. Well, I mean, we can't we can't go on with the show much longer in L.A. without talking about these dramatic elections um, and, and what they really are and uh, what's going to happen in the next 10 or 11 days. Um, money, uh, those of you who read national newspapers and even local newspapers, uh, um, Mayor Bloomberg of New York um, paused on his war against soda pop and handguns and sent a million dollars of his uh, billions to the L.A. school board races, to an organization that nobody knows quite who runs it except it's very affiliated with the mayor, uh, to pick some candidates and not pick some other candidates. Uh, Joel Klein, the chancellor, who I mentioned earlier, who I debated on the last forum I got to be with with Brian, um, sent $25,000 of his own money as he heads the educational division of Fox uh, uh, News, uh, Rupert Murdoch's organization, who stands trial in England today. Uh, the head of Fox here in L.A., uh, Peter Chernin, and his wife Meg Chernin have put in uh, well over a hundred thousand dollars. They've gotten the head of Sony Pictures. They've gotten to give a hundred thousand uh, uh, dollars. Uh, Eli Broad, who has in one of the rooms nearby, must must have more attending there because uh, there's more resources there than Columbia University has. But he put a quarter of a million dollars into the campaign. Uh, uh, Perencio, who uh, owned and sold Univision Television, put a quarter of a million and. They've engaged about 17 people in a county of 9 million. 17 people have put in nearly $3 million. That does not cause an engagement of a populace to care about their schools. Now, I'm not saying that the teachers' union or the unions have motivated people either because they've missed, from my point of view, a glorious opportunity of the three races. There are three incredibly interesting teachers running. There's a gal that the LA Times endorsed who has raised about $14,000 against her opponent who has $800,000 from these folks. She is a, uh, a poor Latina, half Latina, half Anglo, who grew up in Arizona, got a National Hispanic Scholarship, went to Columbia University, went to Columbia Law School, uh, and became a civil rights lawyer in the Pacoima area of the East Valley. Uh, she became uh, very engaged in housing and food issues and realized that one after another of the people who were coming into her as a civil rights attorney were lacking in education. She quit law and became an elementary school teacher uh, in, in, in central L.A. Um, fascinating character. And the teachers union, well, they, they endorsed her because she's a fifth grade teacher, but they have done nothing really to help her. Uh, they have a Teach for America teacher who sits on the board who I, I knew as a colleague, uh, Steve Zimmer, uh, who's become, uh, who's tried to keep the two halves of this uh, town together, the, the re so-called reformers and the so-called status quo folks. And, and Steve is a Teach for America teacher. The very organizations that five years ago, Eli Broad, Joel Klein, and all these revenue people were giving lots of money to the organization that birthed a guy named Steve Zimmer, who instead of being a normal Teach for America guy who stays for two or three years, is more like Tommy Chang and Steve Zimmer who stay 10, 15, 20 years in public education and are doing something on the policy level. So two teachers, one Latina, one West Side uh, representative, and then a third uh, parent educator teacher to transition. 
a woman named Isabel Vasquez is running against the board president. She has about $6,000, as some of her uh, others who are running against the incumbent, who has nearly a million dollars to run against $6,000. You talk about national elections, and, and uh, Jimmy Carter last night called it uh, legalized bribery. That when you have that much money in a race, Jimmy Carter said on CNN last night, it's essentially legalized bribery of your public officials. And here's a, a third teacher, Latina, bilingual activist, parent educator, three teachers could have unleashed in this town a love of those who love to teach the children in poor and diverse neighborhoods and diverse people. And the teachers union missed that opportunity, did not endorse Isabel Vasquez, was reluctant until the end to to support Steve Zimmer when it became an issue of power and balance. They came back and help, are helping him in the last weeks. And and then finally this civil rights, you know, brings us full speed, sort of a, a person who is sort of the child of the war on poverty. There's the candidates, and yet millions, it, it makes Diane Ravitch's book uh, the, about the billionaires controlling public education seem like perfect foreshadowing of what's happening here in this battlefield here in L.A. And if they can do that discussion in L.A., which I'm not sure it's decided yet, uh, it will depend. Ultimately, lots of rich people have tried to control things. Nelson Rockefeller couldn't become president with all of his wealth, but it is clearly undecided down into these last days, and money is pouring in uh, from all over the place. Well, you know, I think uh, what is awfully clear here is that it's, it's complicated. Um, it's not easy. There, there's a lot to consider uh, in this debate, uh, particularly around how it happens. Um, the, you know, what, what we see and what we're hearing uh, about L.A. Um, is not um, specifically unique to L.A. There are a lot of um, districts around the country that um, have um, similar um, maybe not at the same scale, but similar issues of disenfranchised communities, about uh, politics being in the way of education. Um, and then the real struggle, um, let us not forget, is um, classroom to classroom. And, and my, my point earlier about um, people forgetting uh, and leaving out the conversation um, uh, regarding poverty, um, that what has made the headlines has been about teachers' unions agreeing to um, uh, evaluation um, and performance standards and, and pay connected to uh, student performance. That's the conversation that has been going on primarily. And, and so um, I, I think it's important for us to understand how complicated this is. Uh, we're extending the show just a bit. Um, I do, uh, because I promised individuals in the room that if anyone had a, um, a question, uh, we'd be happy to entertain it at this point. Uh, there's a wireless mic out, um, and so we'll, we'll raise your hand, and uh, the mic will uh, be passed to you. And we just ask you to just uh, uh, give us, uh, tell us your name, and uh, tell us a little bit um, just quickly, who you, what your affiliated organization is. Hi, my name is Susan Williams, and I work at Andy University of Washington for Urban Education. So, that's where we are in my spot. Um, so, I go around the state school district and work on the school reform efforts. Right now, I'm the director of the 
contract in a large Colorado school district, and our principal district you can probably figure that out. Um, and they're engaged in many dramatic And so I have watched over the last two years the school district um, fire teachers and principals in the middle of the year, appoint leaders without any, there was a parent process, but it was a pretend parent process. Um, and I have yet to see those two games. You know, I have seen communities work apart, but I've seen schools shut down kind of randomly. Some schools were shut down, that made sense, because they were very low performing. But other schools were shut down because the parents didn't know how to advocate. And in my experience there, and my work there in many of the schools, what I see is the true deficit uh, in leadership and in And so I wonder, as leaders that you are, how do you bring that back? How do you bring back the ethics and the, the ability to truly lead in a democratic way in the school district and not in the political? I know that everything is political, I get it. You know, it's easy to a policy degree too. But it's at the expense of the children and it's at the expense of the community. And it is all of them. So, um, so our, for our audience, just in case it was not clear um, to the radio audience, um, um, our question from the audience was, um, how do you lead um, in give, in, uh, ethically in given these, uh, these times and these um, uh, particular uh, situations? Well, I just say President Obama should appoint Pedro Noguera as Secretary of Education. I mean, that would that would immediately start a conversation instead of, um, you know, Arnie. But presidents tend to pick their hometown basketball friend or their their cowboy friend, the guy before. Uh, I think Pedro Noguera understands uh, race, class, community, uh, the discussion uh, that that distracts as well from curriculum instruction issues, what really motivates a child, uh, a hungry child, a poor child, can be an incredible idea uh, that is stimulated by a classroom leader, classroom by classroom, school by school. So I think when you appoint somebody who really didn't know much but uh, about after-school programs and maybe some foundation stuff, smart guy, nice guy, caring guy, uh, because there was again the same battle between uh, the the AFT wanting Linda Darlingham and then the foundations wanting something, shall we say, worse than Arnie Duncan, that they settled. The president said, well, I, "I can't take this. I'm just going to take the guy I know from my hometown." You you set up a national discussion that misses these issues. So leadership starts at the top, and hope starts at the top. And I think uh, in California we have not only hope. And leadership, we have a guy who's a governor who has experience. He's a little anti-institutional. He sort of uh, uh, probably would close all schools and, and let kids learn in some uh, pa uh, Paulo Freire type, uh, 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 well, so community schooling, I think he would do. But I think um, you're right. We need to start having a discussion about content, yeah. not hey. just about the process. And so you, you hit it on the head, it is an issue of leadership. And to address the question of how do you bring that back, if I knew that, it would be done. And so I can't tell you the answer that I can tell you and speak on terms and context of myself as a director and supervising principals. That, that would be that by leading by example. You know, you have to make certain you get the right people on the bus, number one. 
and then you lead them through exemplar exemplars and exemplary examples yourself. I like to think of myself as one who would somewhat challenge the quite the status quo. Uh and oftentimes <laughs> oftentimes it, it was detrimental to me. But nevertheless, as you mentioned, it is this life of the students that we have to think about. Uh, and so a lot of my skin is in the game, personally and professionally. And so I try to find and elicit those individuals that wish to be those types of leaders as well. Uh, it's a small step, very microcosmic step, but it's a step. Now, you, you, I don't know if you can find another 100 Dwayne Davises or another hundred David Kotowski, but they're out there. Uh, we're, I don't want to say few and far in between, but we're dispersed in areas, like you mentioned Pedro, uh, and, and if we ever had a concentrated effort, that, then we could probably do some phenomenal things together. Good, thank you. And so, um, I'd just like to thank my guests um, uh, again for agreeing to come and be a part of this forum. We're here. Um, at the J.W. Marriott uh, Olympic Boulevard in Los Angeles. Uh, we're here as a part of also um, the connected to uh, the Teachers College Columbia University um, alumni reception that uh, takes place immediately following this um, and, and in recognition of 125 years of uh, providing um, teachers and leaders and uh, educational specialists to the world um, um, right on the hill um, in, in New York City. And so um, at the end of another broadcast, uh, we are asking um, all of you that are listeners uh, to take this message out and understand that um, this is the, what, what I, I gather here, that this is about community, it's about engagement, um, and, and we need all of you uh, to be a part of the discourse on what's going on in education uh, in our country. And so until next time, go well, stay well.